Come on, let's go. Come on. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, people checking in already. Jason Schultz is quick on the draw today. Probably wants to hear what JoJo's got to say. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. We are uh, going to chop it up with my man Joe Robeson from the Michigan DNR. Joe's like a... Well, he's a waterfowl killer, there's no doubt. <clears throat> That's number one. He's a good dude, and uh, he knows a ton about waterfowl. He's been doing, he's been in it his whole life. So uh, Joe's got some good, Joe's going to have some good info for you guys. And if anybody's got any comments or questions as we go, we'll jump right to it. I'll, I'll holler at Joe in a little bit. Jed will probably make a little appearance. My son Cole's going to bring Jed up for a minute. Uh, obviously, big shout-outs to everybody that helps us go and throws a partnership with us. Benelli, uh, man, I got whoo, I got that new Best Series gun. My God, I'm going to do another video on that and throw that up. That thing is a beast. Uh, I can't wait to put that in the salt water and, and put that in the grind. Ah, Jet's making his appearance. Hold on. He's getting too big to almost hold and get in the shot. Hey, Bubba. Ho, 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 ho. Hi. Hi. No, don't chew on the microphone. Hi. Hi. Give me a kiss this. Come here. Come here. You being a good boy? You being a good boy? Huh? Good boy. All right. Jets, 14 weeks right now. We've been doing a bunch of training. He's actually been doing pretty good. So we've been putting our work in to get him uh, up to speed. So hopefully, hopefully by this year, he'll be retrieving some ducks and some geese. So he's ready to go. So yeah, you ready, Bubba? Okay. All right, Cole, you can ground, bud. Everybody likes seeing Jet more than anybody else on this show. So, oh, if you're watching the podcast. Hi, Bubba. I see you in a little bit. If you're, uh, <clears throat> if you get to watch it, get to see all the shenanigans that goes on so i was giving everybody a shout out benelli uh obviously federal ammunition and my buddy jj over there and everybody that does stuff at federal and always supporting us uh my my buddy rob up in ranchland outfitters up in alberta canada uh it's like the best place in the world to go <laughs> to be honest 
I've been going up there for a long time, been friends with Rob a long time, and just everything. Just It's like family when you go up there. Uh, him and Lori and everybody, just family, so it's cool. Um, and also a couple other folks that always jump in and do stuff with us, Pattermaster, I've uh, been shooting that forever, uh, and a bunch of other people that always jump in and help us, Mossy Oak, um, Loophold, my buddy Anthony, I just talked to him at Benchmade today. Um, just all great products. My buddy Brooks, I talked to him from Camp Chef this week. They got some stuff cooking, like literally and figuratively. So it's pretty, pretty awesome to, uh, to, you know, work with some, work with some cool people that you, man, you have a ton of, in common with them. And, uh, you, you just get, you just get to do cool stuff. That's, that's like my favorite thing about this whole, about this whole industry is just doing stuff with people you know, that you, that you like, that you get along with, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. So big shout outs to all those people. We'll get Joe on in a hot second. Um, we're getting close folks. We're, we're getting desperately close to being able to get outside more and chase critters of the waterfowl variety and birds. So I'm just, uh, oh man, I'm just excited. So Plus, we got a ton of cool stuff coming this year, which I can't wait to, I just can't wait to bring everything out. We got the last mass, uh, last pass mallards in stock. Uh, those are the economy buy ones. And, uh, man, there's just so much more coming. I just, uh, I can't, I can't let, let the cat out yet, but I, I will, I will be able to soon. And I'm telling you when, when I do, anybody that's been a fan of the brand for a long time, uh, as long as it's been going, uh, hopefully you'll see some progress and you'll see some hard work and you'll see some stuff that everybody at the company's been doing to try to, um, you know, bring that brand back. So, um, so we're excited. We're excited to show it off. So. So that's all coming. So you just gotta, you just gotta hang in there. I'm gonna give Jojo a call and get him and get him up and running here, so we could. Him and I usually can talk for a fair amount of time. <clears throat> so, hey, Bubba, what's going on? Hey, Mario, how you doing? Good, buddy. Let me get your levels right. All right. Go ahead. My levels will ever be right. <laughs> Yeah, your levels are a mess, bro. 110 miles an hour. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, right? Somebody's got to yeah. be, yeah, yeah. Somebody's got to catch walleye and work at the duck marsh and do the real job and all the other things associated with life. Yeah, you got it so, so, so rough, bro. Do you want me to, you want us to shed a tear for you today? Not today. Not today? We'll see, we'll see you tomorrow, Brian. <laughs> Oh, oh, Jojo, you're killing me. All right, so listen, Jojo and I go back, like, way back. Long time. And uh, Joe's got a lot to offer and a lot of uh, information, a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Like, what were you telling me yesterday, South Dakota or, uh, I'm sorry, North Dakota? Did yeah, North Dakota. You know, unfortunately, a lot of things got shut down with, with COVID-19 and 
here in Michigan, we weren't you know allowed to do conduct this, the spring breeding waterfowl survey. It's an annual survey. I think we've been doing it since 1992. Right. You know, the U- U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does it on a larger scale, and then you got Canadian Wildlife Service and most of the states and the feds were shut down because of COVID. Um, but North Dakota found a way to do their survey and they just uh, published results. Um, that's pretty much the only results we're going to have for, in terms of uh, breeding populations. Yeah, right. numbers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but um, they're, you know, when you're flying, it's it's a, it's a little difficult to explain, but like uh, they use Michigan as an example. Usually we fly right around the third week of April and we fly, we fly the same, the same transect. What I mean by a transect, if you can think about Michigan, you know, under your hand as you go from like day one is from you're flying in the Cessna 182, 185. You got an observer on each side of the plane. You're flying treetop level going about 90 miles an hour. Right. And you're counting, you're counting ducks and geese and swans and sandhill cranes um, on each side of the plane. You go from Lake Erie to Lake Michigan you go for about 18 miles and you go from Lake Michigan back to Lake Erie and that's day one. And then you fly all the way up into the upper peninsula and that conducts the, uh, the whole annual uh, survey for waterfowl and all that good stuff. And it, it gives you an estimate of what the population is. So you can compare it from year to year. Obviously there's a lot of other factors that are involved. Um, you know, reproduction, you know, right. What brood survival, um, you know, good habitat, all that, all that stuff uh, contributes to, you know, greater numbers of ducks in the fall. The, big, the biggest thing is a lot of hunters will read these numbers and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Ducks Unlimited, you know, you know, post up the numbers and then right. hunters will hunters will look at the numbers saying, "Oh man, it's going to be a great year." Well, then you get a fall where you, know, you get El Nino or something goes on. Right, you don't get the weather. Right, right. The, the weather is the, one of the biggest components of migration, other than oh, there's no doubt. Know, there's other there's other factors, but. You, de- you definitely have to have weather to push some of the hardy ducks down the mallards and some of those ducks. But, um, yeah, there's no yeah, doubt. So there's, there's no doubt. A lot, of, a lot of factors in migration. Hey, so when you're flying, you know, because this is, I mean, that's a pretty cool experience, I got to think. So uh, how are you, like, how are you truly keeping track of the birds when you're spotting? Like, so you not only have to spot and have to record what you're seeing. Yeah, you have a you have a voice recorder. You're, you're ah, talking into that voice recorder. Gotcha. And so, yeah, obviously you have to have somebody that can fly without getting sick. It's that's hard to find because you're flying low elevations and fat. Right. But most importantly, you got to have somebody that can fly and identify ducks and right. You know, mute, mute swans versus uh, trumpeter swans and sandhill cranes and Canada geese. You right. can actually when you're you fly it enough. I've been flying flying this for. 20 some years and you kind of know where you know oh i've seen that nesting pair of can of geese on that point forever and you can actually look down and see a can of goose on a nest so you're right. recording geese on nests you're recording groups of geese you're recording uh, pairs of geese um the other the other part to that is the reason you're you're trying to count the pairs and the groups is because Canada geese, uh, they don't really uh, reach structure maturity until they're three years of age they really don't begin nesting until they're three years of age one and two year olds we call them sub-adults and those, those birds, especially here in the Midwest, you know, usually around Memorial weekend until the first week of June, you see big groups of like 20, 30, 50, 60 birds. Those are all sub-adult geese. They're non-breeders. Right. They'll, they'll head north and spend the summer, you know, big bachelor party up in Canada, Gamsky Island, James Bay, all parts of Canada up there. We do Like Michigan here, we do get birds from Kentucky and Ohio and, and Indiana um, that come up into Michigan, but 
the reason we know that is because we did a research project, you know, several years ago, probably 15 years ago, actually. And um, one of our research specialists, Dr. David Lukin, and he put transmitters, uh, net collars with transmitters and, and monitored these birds for several years with some graduate students. And we found that out, you know, that during that time, those birds are going up to way up north to Gamsky Island, James Bay. Um, it's, and then they, re they return. Usually the peak time is like September 20th or the first week of October is when they start coming back from the north. You get those north cool, you know, fall, starting to get fall days. And you get those north winds and you get a lot of those molt migrators coming in. Yep. You can call them from way up and that's a great time. A lot, a lot of folks though, hunt the first couple of days of early goose season. We got 30 days here in Michigan, September 1st to the 30th. Wow. That's a lot. And five a day. And, you know, they give up. And um, the thing they need to remember is when those, you get start getting those north winds coming out of the north and cool nights, and you start seeing birds come out of the north in big groups, and that's a great time to hunt. Do you think you're, do you think you're killing some of those birds, some of those, um, you know, bachelor birds, let's call it? Or are they not down yet in that early season? The earliest, I believe, looking at the research from my memory, which is still pretty darn good, uh, August 20th was the earliest, I believe, birds started coming back. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, so so when you're talking about those birds, what what's the research on the snows as far as are they, are they similar as far as uh, it takes them a few years before they pair up? Or what are the snows like? Yeah, I'll be honest with you, we don't have snows here in Michigan. Right, so right. I don't know. I don't know a lot about the biology and behavior of snow geese. I've never really. Okay, I didn't know if you knew it. that or not. Because I'd nope. be I'd be interested in knowing that because I, you got to think that they're probably a little more aggressive breeding because of the numbers and where they're at. So I, I don't know. I, I I'll have to talk. My buddy Brad, probably up in Canada, probably know that one. He's into that pretty good. I'm I'm guessing it would be a second year bird that would breed just because of the numbers and how, you know how much madness that they're, they're all about. So, but we can yeah, just go ahead. Their biggest yeah, go, their biggest thing for nesting is when they get up there and there's still snow on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. So, uh, so the flyovers. So you you guys do that, and and you said you do it the same, the same general time every year. Yes. And yep. the same. You're flying pretty much the same areas because, you know, those are the, the proven, you know, breeding grounds, counting grounds. I mean, that's usually what everybody is doing so we can get accurate counts. Because if you count over here one year and you count over there another year, it, it, it's not going to work out. Now you're flying off your GPS unit and right. you get the same observers doing it every year. And you're like, yeah, I flew over that barn. I flew over that silo. <laughs> right. You know, because you, know, you, you got the pilot that's, that's flying. That's his base. Basically, his main job is making sure you're safe and watching out for other birds right. um, while, you're, while he's flying. Um, so we usually fly with the Michigan State Police here in Michigan. They're, they're great guys to fly with. Uh, they've got a lot of air time and a lot of experience. So now plus they're fun, and they like to joke around. Now, you guys have, uh, like you were talking about, you guys have mute swans. How many swans do you guys? I know you have mute swans. You have trumpeters. Is that the only ones you have there? Yeah, that's the only two we have in the, in the during the during the summer. We do get a migration of tundra swans that come through in the gotcha. fall and the spring. And the mutes are you guys are you guys the only state? Um, are you guys the only state that like has a, a call on those on the mute swans? No, other states around us that do that also. Gotcha. Yeah, there's they use different methods and different agencies, but you know I know Ohio does and. 
uh, Wisconsin does. And in Michigan, we have our own protocol in reducing mute swan populations. And a lot of folks might ask why, and I uh, get that brought up a lot. Right. Uh, why, why can, you know, the DNR or, or other agencies that, you know, permitted to go out and take care of aggressive swans or large populations, you know, through our spring breeding waterfowl survey, it showed that those mute swans, which are, they're not native to North America. Um, they right. drive off. They drive off native wildlife, you know, native ducks and geese, and they also des- destroy some habitat. They, you know, dig down to deroot the vegetation, and so mute mute swans are really not supposed to be here. Uh, we're trying to make right. native wildlife thrive, and we saw that the population was exploding, and this was one way to, to try to reduce the population. Plus, we just had a a, a gal riding one of those uh, surfboards, you know, the wind surfboard, whatever they call it. Oh yeah. Uh, the 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 uh, wind surfer, yeah, wind surfer. Yeah, yeah. She she was knocked off and attacked by a mute swan. Get out. Yeah. Well, I got nothing to do for the next week or so. I could come over and help you thin those out. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, unfortunately <laughs> we're still we're still in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> um. So are are you guys as far as Mich- Michigan like versus Ohio and everybody else? Do you guys have the most mute swans there? We, we have around 14,000. Okay. That's a pile. Yeah. And like you said, they cause an enormous amount of damage just on everything. Right. Yeah, and the aggressiveness and everything else. Yeah. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah. I, uh, we don't get them out this way, so I don't know nothing about them, which is, but it's cool. You guys are taking care of your business over there. Uh, it's co- on our, on that survey. You know, yeah. we're flying that we're flying the sessions we do it annually, and obviously you cannot count every duck and goose. You sure, know, from it's there impossible. So what we do is every you know three to five years, um, there's like you know so many segments in that transect. Like I explained, that transect goes from Lake Erie to Lake Michigan, right? And say you got 18, 18 segments that range in six to nine mile mile long segments within that transect. So every three to five years, you randomly select a couple couple of segments in each one of those transects and right after you're done flying with that with the cessna with a you know airplane right you got a you got a chopper that comes in and you fly ground level and flush everything out and that gives you a correction factor gotcha so that's how you put in your correction factor for the next few years and then you go back and do your helicopter survey again because you know people aren't you know flying the surveys for 50 years most people around 30 35 years you got new observers so you always got to continue to improve your your index well and you're trying to get i mean you're trying to get it as accurate as possible you know what i mean i mean everybody that's doing that kind of survey obviously is trying to be as accurate as possible and and just like you said before it's it's awesome when we see the numbers and you know pintails are up or mallards are up or teal or you know that's all great and and it's great for the species but it just you know and everybody says well hopefully we should have a great year. Well, I hope so too, but it all depends on the weather. So, you know, weather, we're optimistic. It, yeah, we're always optimistic. We're waterfall hunting. That's right. You know? I that's mean, right. That, let's face it. When you when you can see the sunrise and sunset, that's a, and birds flying in the marsh or flooded cornfield, or whatever it may be, that's a great day. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Shooting, shooting ducks is a bonus. That's right. That's right. We're talking to Joe, my man Joe Joe from uh, the DNR in Michigan. Uh, and I just want to give a couple shout outs. A couple of people checked in. Tony Bernson checked in. Jason Hart, Bill Saunders up in Washington checked in. So, Joe, what's your official title there 
Um, you know, I, I think it's like the VP of grab ass and wasting time. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I know. That's a big, that's a, one of the big things you, when you tell somebody you work for the DNR, uh, right away they make the assumption you're a conservation officer. And right. I have, I have no training in being in law enforcement or anything like that. I went right. to college for waterfall and wetlands, natural resource management. So right. actually I'm a wildlife biologist, um, but for the past four years I, I've had the great opportunity to be the um, Southeast Regional Supervisor in Southeast Michigan. So I'm a Southeast Regional Supervisor. I supervise 17 counties from Saginaw Bay to Jackson to Monroe up to Lake St. Clair. And I have five, five major managed waterfall areas in my region. And those managed waterfall areas range in size from 1,500 acres to 10,000. And at, at those areas, we're intentionally managing not only habitat for critters, but we're manipulating you know water levels for great marsh conditions. We do agricultural production and flood in the fall for duck hunters. I get a lot of my friends from down south when they come up to Michigan. Um, it's actually what I like to call a sleeper state. Oh, there's no doubt it is. A lot of folks don't uh, realize that, you know, Michigan ranks number one a lot of times in the nation for Canada goose harvest. We're usually yep. in the top five to ten for mallard harvest in the Mississippi Flyway. Uh, we're the number one state in the nation for buffalo harvest. That's a great, great claim to fame right there. <laughs> well, listen, besides, besides you guys have, like, more – listen, you guys are, are, are similar to Pennsylvania where I grew up. You know, there's more – there's almost more deer hunters in Michigan than there are people in, in other states. I mean, it, yeah. it, I mean, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, I mean, Ohio, you're talking about like, you know, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of deer hunters. They have just under, just under 600,000 deer hunters in Michigan now. What's, we used to have over, we used to have over a million. And then obviously everybody's been seeing the national trend go down declining over right. the last 20 years. So, yeah. What, Hey, so we've talked about that a couple of weeks ago with, with some guys at Delta Waterfowl and a couple other things about numbers going down and stuff like that. What's your take, Joe? What do you, what do you think is, is driving some numbers down? Because when, when I had talked to those guys, they were, they were talking and, and focused on, you know, the generation of, of waterfowl hunters coming through, getting older and now, getting out of the sport and the newer you know we didn't usher enough other younger hunters in you know and there's a couple other factors but you know what i mean we we definitely talked about that so what do you think like just on the management side and everything else from your your eyes what do you think is driving numbers down from a lot of the research and surveys that you know i've read over the last you know, 10, 15 years watching the, unfortunately watching the hunters numbers that climb. Right. That's a, that's not, that's not good for water, waterfall hunters. No. You know, the less voice we have in conservation and yeah. uh, making changes, you know, you have less people out there and yep. then you have, you know, people that are for hunting, which actually we got a pretty good national uh, response rate on uh, people that support hunting. It's, it's higher than it's been in a long time, which is a good thing. But, well, well, and I think, you know, you, I think it's got to do with, I truly think that part right there, like you said, that survey, I think that totally has to do with the push for, you know, field to fork, you know, all the all the transitions of where does your food come from. I totally think it's that push that's kind of made hunting okay. You know what I mean? Whereas all of us have been doing that all our lives. You know what I mean? 
I mean, can you right. count how many deer steaks you've eaten or duck breasts or goose legs or, you know what I'm saying? Like, so we've right. done that our whole lives, but now like all of a sudden, you know, this next generation has thought that, oh, it's, it's probably a good idea to really press this and talk about this and be very organic. Uh, but, but hunting is so organic in itself. It's always been, it's just never been positioned like that, but now it's, you know, now it's organic. It's cool, which is fine. Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. fine with me. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, before all this stuff came down with the COVID, we used used to have this uh, group here in Michigan that had to go around and pair up wine with wild game and go into the, like Detroit and Grand Rapids, uh, the big cities, and uh, teach a lot of these younger folks. Uh, you know, it's, the wild game is nutritious for you. It's got a great taste, and if you pair it with the right wine, it even tastes better. Um, <laughs> so think things like that. Um, also, people ask me about the, you know, the youth hunt. You know, you get kids out on the youth hunt. Yep. And you can see where you introduce these kids at a young age to waterfowl hunting, and you see they get excited for a few years, and then a couple years later they might go a couple more times. Then they go off to college or get a job, and then when they get about 28, 30 after they're married or got a couple kids or whatever the case may be, then you see a few of them get back into it, but the percentage of people getting back into it is not – it doesn't – doesn't exceed the number of hunters we're losing on an annual basis for whatever reason. So I wonder, I wonder if we, uh, just like you said, that whole, that whole transition, I wonder if we, I wonder if we lose some rate in that coming out of college and everybody's focused on their career and, and then maybe as they get settled more, maybe they come back. Do you, you think, you think that's a, you think that's has anything to do with it or you think that's a cycle right there that happens? That's what you know, a lot of the survey results show that once they once they get done with college and they come back, they start their life. They're working a lot of hours or working two jobs, whatever yeah. it may be. They got a family, and a, a small percentage of them come back, but a lot of them don't. That's what I get asked a question a lot about these youth hunts. What are we really doing? You know, introducing kids at a young age, and you get some hunters that are mad because they're out there shooting birds before them, the adults. Oh and I'm like, God. listen, I'm like, listen, <laughs> they're only there for two days. I said we're you know, Michigan, Michigan here in Michigan, we're, we're a referendum state. So if you get enough people to put together enough signatures, they can put all kinds of stuff on the ballot. Right. And so the more we can teach and educate five individuals, 20 individuals, whatever, whatever your number could be for each waterfall hunter out there and introduce someone new to waterfall hunting, you're, you're teaching that not only waterfall, the, the history and the tradition of it, the importance of it from the economic standpoint, right. the importance of it from conservation, the importance of spending money to create more wetlands and grassland habitat. They may not hunt their entire life, but you're going to educate them that hunting is not barbaric. Hunting is a, a you know enjoyment, a pure recreational opportunity. It has a lot of benefits that, other than just harvesting a few ducks, which I love to do because I like to eat them. But right. it's it's more it's more than just you know, pulling the trigger and shooting a duck. It's it's about how duck hunters and hunters in general, they have been the conservationists. You know, hunters have been the conservationists through the 20th century and 21st century, and they're going to continue until we find another uh, funding mechanism. Hunters have paid for conservation. And right. All, all these other user groups, which is great, they get to use the resource to, the same as us, like people that want to kayak and canoe. Oh, sure, the bird watchers. Or, right, yeah, you're absolutely right. right. You're absolutely right. You know, I had a discussion with some people uh, here that, uh, you know, they're 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 against hunting. Um, 
you know, they, they push their agenda. And we'll see them at this annual thing over here. It's called the, uh, the Bird Festival. It's at uh, one of the wildlife refuges that's managed by the feds. So it's federal. And I'll see them there. And, you know, you see them, you know, and they, they kind of look at you funny and this and that. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, uh, all the guys that are here that, you know, buy a, a duck stamp, you know, I make sure I buy two every year. Uh, and I just put one away just because I save them, and I, I figure that's the least I could do is buy another stamp, you know what I mean, because I know where the money's going. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when did a when did a bird watcher or anybody like that or a kayaker or whatever, when did they have to buy a federal stamp to be able to go on, you know, all this property and all this stuff that, that we've helped maintain and you know put money towards so that that i always make sure i point that out (laughs) right i I don't know if i'm right doing that but i mean i'm right in 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 the case of what what we contribute and they don't uh but you know i just like to point that out just so they know like hey listen we don't just you know kill stuff and do whatever you know we like just like you said we have always been the conservationists number one uh, maintaining everything and doing the the most that we can for the game and fish and everything else. So, you know, I, I just wish more people would understand that that aren't in that light. And maybe, like you said, maybe the youth programs and stuff like that, maybe it's at least showing them all the sides of it so they can decide for themselves instead of just, you know, being against it or, or having somebody tell them that or just thinking something before they even know the, the actual, you know, details about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, the um, I just read a really awesome article uh, the other day. Uh, they they have a deer issue in New Zealand in this one section, and they usually go in and um, they take the deer and they will export it. But with all the, you know, the COVID going on and everything that has gone on, they turned around and made a positive. So they took those deer that were going to be harvested and sent somewhere, and they actually just filled the food banks. uh, And they said they had enough to, you know, feed the food banks for three months, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, that's a ton of food. And I wish wish a lot more states, uh, mine including, uh, I wish would do more programs like that uh you know like oregon has you know geez i was just talking to somebody and and said something like we have the highest homeless percentage in the country and if we if we're not number one we're right there you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. we have we have a a, a, there's no doubt in a problem we have mild weather uh you know, uh, there, there's a, there's, it's an easy state to come to travel to we're in between California, Washington, we're on the coast, the whole deal. Right? right. So, but we have a, a, we don't have a program like that for the amount of guys who fish and hunt and harvest animals and, and do all this stuff. Um, you would think that we would have especially being the, the, the granola slash organic state that we are, you think that we would have some kind of program that really promoted that. I mean, the, they'll go down and 
oil eggs or, you know, goose eggs or, you know, do something like that instead of taking that and using it for a, a positive to feed people. So, I mean, that, man, that one, that one right there drives me absolutely sideways here in this state. So we, we have a great program here in Michigan called Sportsmen Against Hunger. And, you know, with a, a lot of folks in Michigan are really going towards, you know, quality deer measurement or going to a better buck to doe ratio. So right. a lot of families can only eat one or two, one or two deer and they might shoot a couple extra does just try to get that herd in balance and they'll, right. da- they'll donate those deer to Sportsmen Against Hunger, you know, feeds the homeless shelter, the food banks, all that stuff. And when we do like deer calls in the cities where there's no hunting allowed, which those, that's all controlled by the cities or municipalities, that's their, that's their call. And when they're having issues with deer, they'll they'll bring in um, some sharpshooters and they'll harvest those deer. Those are those deer are all donated to a homeless shelter or food bank. Um, we we have a pretty good program. Yeah, you, it sounds like it's a great program. I mean, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about because I mean, listen, you know, you're talking about a lot of animals, like especially like I said, if you're a sportsman out here, you can you can fish or hunt, you know, for something just about any given time throughout the year. And the amount of animals that you could chase and harvest and fish is just, you know, and I'm talking shellfish. I, I mean, I mean, you name it because we're on the coast show. We got everything. So, you know, imagine that. I mean, you, you can't you can't eat it all. There's you can't. You know what I mean? And especially right. if you love the sport. And like you said, especially if you're, you know, harvesting animals to keep everything in check and keep the population if you have private property or, you know, they, they do the landowner preference tags here and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, you know, take that and if we had a program, we'd be better off here. So I, I wish we did. So who knows? It's a tough one. It's a mm-hmm. tough one. <clears throat> so... So we got, were the numbers good of the flyovers or what, what did you guys see? We didn't even get to the actual, you know, numbers of the, the, the North Dakota flyovers. Did they, did they publish that? And did you get that yeah, yet? Just, yeah, it just came out. Um, they, they talk about how, um, the only species that was really down was redheads was down 12%. Hmm. Ruddy duck, your, your favorite duck, ruddy duck was up 87%. That, you know, that's so funny that you said that because the first time in my life living here this spring, I had ruddy ducks on the duck club. And that's never, that's never happened. Never see them here. Not spring or fall, which is crazy. So yeah. those were up that much. Wow. Yeah, green, green wing tail was up 66%. Oh, that's good. And blue, blue wing tail were up 58%. Mallards were unchanged and pintails were down about 2%, which is... Which is about normal. Normal. And then um, Scalper Blueville, you know, we're up 40% from last year's number. Oh, that's good. That's good. We get a pile of them here. Uh, there's no doubt. You know, the, the pintail numbers here, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough subject here. Uh, and I'll tell you why. So, you know, you, you go by the counts of pintails. But then, but when, when the pintails leave and split... So many of them come down this slot, you know what I mean, that it's almost, mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but the percentage that we see is just an enormous amount compared to everybody else. And and it's so it's so tough on us only being able to shoot one bird 
Um, man, it's tough. Oh my God. Yeah, that's that's the thing I always try to remind hunters. You know, you look at these numbers and you're talking about North Dakota. Understand understanding where those ducks are being raised and where they're going to. Right. That's a huge factor. You know, if you're here in Michigan and you start looking at these numbers, oh man, it's going to be a great fall. Uh, we don't get a lot of ducks from North Dakota. Those ducks go straight south. That's why you see great hunting right now in Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas. You know, straight south to North Dakota. That's and where they're Dakota, going. Right. They're, they're producing huge numbers of ducks that they never have historically and they're they actually prairie u.s surpassed prairie canada in producing mallards i believe like 15 15 years ago wow a lot of our a lot of our ducks um actually 78 percent of the mallards you know based on band recoveries that are harvested in, in the fall here in michigan are locally raised in michigan wisconsin minnesota 78 percent of the mallards. that's crazy that's a, it used to be, used to be about 56 percent was from the Great Lake region, and it jumped up to 75% after you started seeing, you know, the transverse relationship and habitat from Prairie U.S. versus Prairie Canada. When I say Prairie Canada, I'm talking about Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Right, right. And those, those ducks have a tendency, some of them come on a south, southeasterly migration through Wisconsin, Minnesota, through Michigan to the east coast, and we're not seeing that anymore because North and South Dakota have great habitat conditions, and they're stopping there. They've been there several years and they you know once a once a female raises a successful nest and that brood comes off so those females usually go back to the race the place where they're raised you know didn't have any issues and were successful so they just keep going back to the same area year after year yeah jason schultz just said minnesota has a ton of mallards they produce and 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 there's no doubt you know what i mean so so it's like it's almost to the point joe where where the migration let's call it you know what I mean? Birds coming from the north and this and that. Well, now maybe it's like birds coming from the west. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like if they're coming from North Dakota or like you're saying, like you're getting Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, all these birds like, or they're coming from North Dakota, like, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's a big swooping, you know, Nike swoosh from the west. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can, you know, I think about the last 10 years and been fortunate enough to shoot a handful of banded ducks here. And I mean, 80% of them are from Michigan somewhere. And then you get a few from Wisconsin and a couple from Ontario, Southern right, Ontario. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a lot, you know, listen, a lot has changed. Um, like a tremendous amount has changed, meaning the weather patterns have changed. The, uh, the habitat has changed the nesting so that has changed the nesting uh the the migration has changed because of the weather and because of you know i mean agriculture and what's gone on there private property that's being uh you know uh, you know planted and what's going on so i mean there are so many factors that have changed a lot of things um and the birds got to change with it you know what i mean they they're mm -hmm. they're trying to survive so it's not the old story of, you know, the birds coming out of the north. Uh, I mean, traditionally that's it, and a lot of them do. But, you know, you got to think, like, there's birds coming from all over now. They're just moving. That's pretty crazy. They definitely are. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you, know you you talk to some of the, the southern hunters of buddies of, you know, you know Terrence and those guys down yeah. in Alabama. Alabama, yeah. We talk about it all the time. Like, you know, they talk about the north shortstopping ducks and, 
like you and I talked about well, yesterday or the day before, we were talking about here in Michigan, our, our season went to like December 11th. Well, we froze up like November 15th. Right. And we do we do have ice eaters at the duck club I belong to, and we have flooded crops. And right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how many ice eaters you have going. There's only a small area that keeps open. It's, it's not like you're holding thousands of ducks. And what they do is they go out on the big water, Lake Erie, and some of the bigger marshes aren't froze yet. And then you have hunters out there hunting. And you pound on them for a couple of days, like, oh man, this is great hunting. Yeah, and then you know, that's we it. need we need we need later and later seasons. <laughs> like, I I told the two two local youngsters that I take out, and like, yeah, watch what happens on day three. <laughs> you go out on day three, where's all the ducks? Yeah, there's limited amount of food, limited amount of open water. And you put all the hunting pressure on them, they're gone. Yeah, they went south. They went south to Ohio, and they're even moving through there as fast as they can, you know, or or whatever. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Yeah. Uh, so last week, last week we were talking about, uh, or two weeks ago, I was talking to the guy down at, at River Refuge Seed, who's a seed company uh, in Oregon. They, they do a ton of, of food, and we were talking, uh, we were talking plants and you know what's good for what. So can you throw some insight into uh, any of the research or knowledge or anything that you have with all the the biology background and, and the bird and the waterfowl and and you know, everybody thinks that, you know, corn is king. Um, and without a doubt, it's a it's a very hot food that is uh, very helpful for them on a migration and the cold and and keeping their, you know, the fire burning. But is there other is there other plants and seeds and 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 things for them to eat that maybe you know, public guys need to keep an eye out for uh, when they're out scouting or what they're looking at or, or or if they have a little spot, they could plant something separate that's not corn or what can they do? You know, can oh, you... Oh, definitely. Yeah, give definitely. me some... Uh, give the give the folks some info on that because that's... I mean, that's as helpful as you can get. Yeah, you got you to remember not all ducks eat corn. Right. You know, there's a lot of ducks that prefer seeds and invertebrates and... You know, small grains, other food sources out there. Um, you know, here in Michigan, we have a smorgasbord. Like, one one of our managed areas will manage for moist soil, and moist soil management is all natural yep. vegetation. You know, seed sources that grow in there. You got your barnyard grass. You got your smart weeds. You got your bitens. You got nutsed. Those are all natural plants that grow when you manipulate the soil, or if you leave water water on it for a while and drain it down and keep a little bit of water there's there's a little bit of magic to make that happen but right you got some of the, that's some of the best food because yep you're right the, you, you have a whole smorgasbord in there of different seed sources and they ripen at different times of the year and if you keep your water shallow in there you, you know anywhere from six inches six to ten inches a lot of guys will want to have two foot of water to get their duck boat in there but um they're but called dabbling not, ducks they're right called dabbling ducks for a reason yep now, have you seen like I talked to uh, I talked to Chris about that a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> there's there's a spot that that I have that's a little, and it's just like a little impoundment. Like it, it, I don't know, maybe it's a half an acre. Like it's so small, but the amount of plantain that grows in there is ridiculous. Okay, and it's every year, and it just keeps coming back, and it's so thick. And I can tell you that, I mean, just from what I've seen and what I know, the teal just absolutely, like, know exactly where that place is, and they just hammer it. Oh, definitely. They like small grains, and, um, you know, a lot of, 
like at all of our managed water fires where you, they some areas uh, conduct drawings twice a day seven days a week some of them uh, conduct drawing three days a week whatever it may be but when right. they bring the ducks in you know we'll do a we'll just check their crops every once in a while and see what they're eating but for the most part in the first half of the season maybe into the three quarters of the season it's most it's most unless it gets really cold right. that's when you start seeing the mallards and a few other ducks start eat, eating the corn right but we, we plant japanese mallard we plant buckwheat you know strips of strip of japanese millet strips of buckwheat and strips of corn in, in our agriculture units and then we have hemi marshes which is a, a mixture of you know cattails and open water and you got submergent veg, vegetation and um, all kinds of different uh, submergent vegetation that produces little seeds that ducks like. Right. And then you have moist soil units, um, like I said, with all those different types of species. And those ducks, those ducks love moist soil. There's, uh, just there's no doubt they the diversity. do. Oh, that smart, that smart weed. If I could get a couple hundred acres of smart weed to grow a year, oh. that's, Listen, that's I'm, fantastic. I'm, I'm super, I'm super lucky, Joe. The the place that the place, uh, the club that we have. Um, has been a low spot and a and a wetland for you know longer than you and I have been alive together, uh, and we drain it down, uh, we drain it down, we end up planting corn. I leave certain sections of uh, just the moist soil uh, that's left, and then by the time by the time the gr- the, gr- the corn is up and growing. It's like a jungle because the the smart weed and the the wild millet are growing still in between the corn and I'm getting like a I'm getting like a triple crop of food like you said they have something they could eat early and not have a hot food then when it gets hot or when it gets cold obviously and they need something hot there's corn and they can just go for it. So, so yeah. I mean, if you have different varieties, you're absolutely best off because you will have something for the birds throughout the whole year. And and when we take the water down, Joe, at the end of the year, all the seeds and everything that's on the bottom or on the shore is there. And then the birds have just an enormous amount of food. You know, at the for, end of the season and after, right? Right. And that's what that's what we do. The same thing when you're planting your corn. Your corn gets up, you know, knee high or thigh high, and you don't have to spray it. You let they look, people call them weeds, but it's moist oh, oil plants. That's right. And we call it we call it dirty corn. There's a, yeah. a great article I, I believe it was Dr. Kaminsky published it. I think about dirty corn and the benefits of having that. You know, you don't you don't need you know seven foot tall corn to no. you know hide in. You know, nope. you got great. You got great camel like mossy oak, shadow grass blade. You can, you know, kneel down or whatever it is in the, you know, six eight inches of water and hide yourself, and you can have some great duck hunting. Well, yeah, you know, with that mix, mixture of uh, wild, you know, barnyard grass and the nut sedge and the smart weeds and all that stuff growing. That's a great combination. You're, you're like you said, you're tripling your food source, really. Yeah, and, and I mean, did, they're not going to cost you any money. Yeah, and they're not going to they're not going to hit the corn right away. You know what I mean? We're not we're not cold. I mean, we. You know, listen. We don't get like you guys get. You know what I mean. I, I just see them all year and what they end up going to. You know what I mean. They're not hitting the corn as soon as they get there. You know what I mean. Plus, the water's not high enough for them to get at it. So they're just going through all the seeds and all, like you said, the small grains and the plantain and the the millets and you know buckley, uh, barley and you know there's so many. You know, you just got to figure out what's 
what's perfect for your place to plant or if you can do the most moist soil i mean that like you said that's incredible like we leave the water on as long as we can to kill the you know keep the weeds down and keep them dead and then you draw it down and then and then let it grow and then bring the water back up i mean yeah there's no doubt that that's you know that's an incredible way to go about it and effective there's no doubt yeah and the other, the other part is when you live along the coast of Michigan or Wisconsin or Minnesota, wherever it may be, or Ontario, you know, there's a delicate balance because we have a thing called invasive, you know, it's invasive species, Phragmites. Oh, yeah. And when you do, the, when you do these drawdowns, if you do them year after year after year, you're going to have an explosion of Phragmites. So there's a delicate balance on we'll keep <clears throat> we'll keep our wetland units, you know, full at full pool for a couple of years, and then three three, four years down the road, we'll do a gradual drawdown in June, which I'm doing right now, one of the, the impoundments at my hunt club. And I'll draw down by the end of June, and then you'll start seeing that moist soil response, and then we'll add a little bit of water for the early teal season, and then a little right. bit more water for the duck season, and then evaluate what the response was in terms of vegetation. And if you start seeing a huge influx of phragmites coming out, we're going to pump the water to it right. and try to try to kill back that phragmites after have, application of a, a chemical have you guys gotten to the point like i know like utah is man they are overrun with with that um and they just end up burning is what they end up doing have you guys gotten to the point of that yet or do you guys do that well what what we do is we produced a, a manual several years ago on how to uh, control phragmites and our best results are in impoundments you know large dike areas where we have water control what we'll, what we'll do is go in in August, September, if it's a large stand, you know, 50 to a couple hundred acres, we'll mm-hmm. hire a helicopter to come in and, and spray a combination of like a rodeo and a habitat. And we'll spray it in August, September, the following year, do a drawdown, burn it off, and then put water on it right away. Right. When, when we don't have that capability of adequately controlling water levels, like we do on a lot of our coastal marshes, that right. you can spray it, burn it, spray it, burn it, and it just keeps coming back. That's Without water thing. control, it's it's like you're just spending money to try to do a good thing, and it's not really helping. Just, there, if you do it on a small, you can do it on a lot smaller scale. But I'm talking right. You're talking you know, on we right. We got thousands of acres of state game areas, you know, in Southeast Michigan that are along Saginaw Bay or Lake Erie. And it's just hard to control where you don't have that. Jeez, that's crazy. Like wetlands with water control. Huh. Well, I mean, thank God we don't have that that crazy issue with that. That that's. Yeah, like I said, the guys in Utah and stuff, they know that all all too well. It's pretty rough over there. So, well, if you guys learn how to keep it in check, I mean, you're doing you're definitely doing it right if you can keep it in check because if it gets if it gets out of control, like it'll go quick and it'll take over. It's pretty it's pretty unbelievable what it can do. There's no doubt. That's definitely very aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. So, so the five management areas that you have are they all huntable? Yes. Gotcha. We're, yeah. uh, you know, we're we're working on we're working on things out here. Um, we added a youth program a couple of years ago at the federal refuge right down the road here, Tualatin, and then uh, there's a new section that they bought, uh, which is like. Uh, the total is like 1,800 acres, so they're going through the process of now um incorporating everything into the plan and it it looks like there will be uh hunting on a section of it which is which is incredible because there's nothing on this side of the 
you know that the the zones right now for hunting uh, on a management style area, which is great for public, and and it's also it's also been like one of the best you know marshes and wetlands. You know, like everybody talks, oh, I hunted that when I was a kid. Oh, I hunted that when I was a kid. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. at least they're doing at least they're doing a solid with having some hunting on it and restoring it and and doing some good things with it so yeah they're they they're supposed to uh open it in september i don't know if anything has held them back but but we're we're getting some more info as everybody's kind of crawling out of the holes of covid to talk about you know doing stuff so that's it's a good thing they have a they have a long process you know they have to develop a comprehensive uh, conservation plan and in that uh, plan, there's sub-chapters like a hunt plan, a right. visitor service plan. There's all kinds of uh, stuff that they have to do. And I know uh, Shiawassee National Wildlife Refuge, they just opened up some of their area to duck hunting last year for the first time ever in the history of the refuge. It used to be open to goose hunting. It was like one of the best spots to go goose hunting back in the you know, 70s and 80s from what oh, the really? old-timers told me. Oh, wow. And um, they're, they're starting to look at different ways to open up a lot of the refuges, though. To hunting so, so waterfall hunting how big is that one joe where and where's that one at that's up at, that's up uh it'd be south southwest of bay city it's right oh yeah what's nice about it is there i think there's just over ten thousand acres of federal land and then we have ten thousand acres of state land and they put up to one another so oh, man they have a nice they have a nice refuge and we have a nice refuge on the state side and uh ducks trade back and forth so that's a big chunk of land up there so yeah that's twenty thousand acres so on the state side you guys are hunting it right mm-hmm. you have management on the state side so they're finally going to put something on the federal side which man that's great yeah that's great yeah. Uh, they've been actually you know they've been re- a really good partner for us here in michigan we we do some hunts with them down here the it's called the detroit international wildlife refuge some of their properties they go through one of my game area officers to get into in the duck drawing and they can hunt uh, several blinds on the federal property or pick one of the state oh, blinds cool. so that's been a good partnership too. So is the is the numbers of geese up there? Is it still still high like it used to be? Like you said, the old timers were talking about. Is are the geese still through there as heavy, or has it changed? No, it's changed. I mean, it's yeah. definitely changed. You know, we we have a a goose area in Southwest Michigan down towards where um, Sean Stahl lived. You know, oh Sean. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that used to be like the number one goose spot in Michigan, and uh, obviously with habitat changes and modifications, geese have adapted. You know, the nest on golf courses and right. urban. <laughs> they don't nest anywhere just about. You're, you're, I've seen them yeah. on top of Walmart. I was just going to say, on the top of a building is, is about the yeah. funniest thing. I think we've all seen that. Yeah. And they, and they have adapted, so they're they're more distributed across the landscape. We still have a local population throughout Michigan. Of, I think it's over 325,000 a spring breeding population, at least 2019 was. Well, I mean, listen. A lot of birds. It, it was a big deal. You know, I didn't grow up here as a kid. But, you know, all the guys that have hunted, you know, Oregon for the majority of their lives, at least on the west side here, you know, the I-5 corridor, you know, would say, oh, my God, like if you shot if you shot a goose when you were out, it was a huge deal. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like they like they were talking like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a guy went, you know, like say it was the little city newspaper or whatever. Like some guy went out and shot a goose. You know, he was in the newspaper, Joe, with the goose because it was that big of a deal. You know what I, I mean? I remember those days. I'm going to date. I'm going to. I'm going to age myself here. 
I remember it was around 80, 84, 85. I shot my first, you know, Canada goose here in Michigan and, uh, people came from all over to see that thing. That's a, that's crazy. And now, crazy. and now we, we winter, we winter so many geese here. Uh, you know, we have the cacklers here. So, I mean, we're just, we're wintering enormous amounts of geese, just ridiculous. So yeah, th- those days, and, and you know, like you said, agriculture whatever the breeding like everything has changed um and that's changed the birds movements their nesting their everything that every move they make has changed so you know and you'll have those traditional you know flyways or places and and things like that you know but yeah there is a lot that has changed there's no there's no doubt about it yeah yeah we we've tried translocating geese to different states, you know, trapping them when they're going through their molding stage when, you know, the adults are losing their, their flight right. colors and right. we'll round them up with the goslings. And we shipped a bunch of geese to Iowa several years ago and we put leg bands on all of them just to monitor where they were going. And I don't know, we, you know, you ship them out in the end of June, <laughs> middle of June, the end of June. And it was January. We have a late goose season here in Michigan, January to early February. And I was hunting up in Ann Arbor about an hour from my house and, we harvested a bunch of geese, our limit, and um, two of the geese I shot, I turned in the bands, and they were oh both birds god. that were translocated to Iowa. Oh my god! So they they, they come back. They, yeah, it's so it's so crazy. There, uh, you know, you almost want to call it their GPS. You know what I mean? Like they are so man. They got they. If we could ever get into their minds, like for real. There's some serious stuff going on there, you know, especially the the GPS. I'd like to, I'd like to hotwire the GPS and kind of figure that deal out. Yeah, yeah. there's a phenomenon called you know philopatry. Philopatry is where the female goes back to the same area where right. you know, she was raised and successful. And right, uh, same thing with uh, female goose. So you'll get a lot. You'll get wood ducks from Michigan that go down south and hook up with a, a wood duck that was produced, you know, male wood duck that was produced down in Alabama or wherever it may be, and right. come back. She brings it back to Michigan. Sound right. familiar? Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I'm talking about your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen. Most, go ahead. Most guys can relate to that. Yeah. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Listen. The the uh, uh, we did some wood ducks here. Uh, we banded some wood ducks here. Uh, they went south and then the following year, like, you know, somebody, there was one recorded was shot in, uh, Montana. And I think there was one in like South Dakota or something. So, you know, went down to wherever, like you said, hooked up with a girl and end up moving or going, going to her house. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's, that's, that's how it works. There's no doubt about it, but it's just crazy how those geese know where to go. Like you said, you transplanted those geese. It wasn't even about anything else. You just transplanted them somewhere else and they come all the way back. And in January, no doubt. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like that's the cra- that's the, probably the craziest part is the timing. You know, maybe they're like, yeah, we, we got to get back there, you know? You gotta get back to Michigan. Gotta go see Joe. <laughs> oh my God, too funny! All right, folks, we're talking to Joe Robeson from the DNR in Michigan. Uh, 
and just a, an all-around good guy and duck and goose killer and and a traditional hunter and a, a guy who loves the sport and takes care of the sport and and that's what we're all trying to do so you know hopefully you hopefully you got something out of this me i mean me and joe could probably talk for another two hours but we usually keep it to an hour so we'll we'll wrap it up is there is there anything uh anything you want to touch on joe before we call it quits yeah. or any go ahead yeah if any, if anybody you know out there has an interest in coming to michigan to hunt you know look look on our dnr website check out the, the managed areas it, they usually give you know weekly updates about when the migrations happening what the numbers are on a weekly basis um, i got you know great wildlife technicians biologists wildlife systems to answer questions we're more than happy to uh, accommodate in any way uh harson's island is a, a great opportunity to go see some of the historical waterfall hunting here in southeast michigan along with uh point vh day game area oh yeah that's a, a great one yeah. A lot of the old famous carvers, you know, uh, Jim Foote and uh, Mason decoys and one arm Kelly. Yep. A lot of those decoys, carvers lived right here in southeast Michigan, made a bunch of decoys for people. Nate Quillen, uh, this is where layout shooting got started. This is where one of the first layout boats was built. Actually, it was on a bar floor in um, southeast Michigan. The guy laid on the floor and they drew it out on the bar floor <laughs> how they wanted to design. There's a great marshland museum that uh, showcases all the historical stuff of western lake erie the waterfall hunting tradition and all that punt gun punt boats it's a pretty cool museum located in um, just north of point bh the game area there yeah i mean you guys you know and, and i think that's another thing to touch on joe like like you were talking about you know michigan's michigan's a sleeper state but but michigan is definitely a sleeper state when you're talking about waterfowl tradition like you know they talk about you know, they talk about the Chesapeake Bay or they'll talk about this or talk about that. And, and, and there's no doubt the, just like you said, the, the, the style of boats that came out of there, the carvers that came out of there, um, you know, that some of the techniques and some of the, you know, a lot of stuff in history, you know, are absolutely wrapped up in Michigan. And it's definitely, definitely a sleeper state as far as waterfowl history and tradition there's no doubt you know i i think i think oregon is a a huge sleeper state in that you know what i mean the amount of the amount of carvers uh the boats that were made out here um the uh the 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 commercial hunters you know what i mean like oh my god the uh, there's a ton out here too as well that so you know, definitely folks need to, you know, get out and see some of it once we're all allowed out of the house and, and going. But there's a lot of other states to check out. So that's cool that you said all that because that, that that's totally part of the tradition and, and stuff that folks need to see. You know what I mean? Yeah, Point Point Moyer was a private, you know, hunt club back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. God, it was called it was called the Millionaire Club, and it was considered one of the most prestigious hunting clubs in North America. And obviously, you know, as time went on, the state ended up buying a lot of the property in 1945 and turned it into um, a state game area. Now it's over 4,000 acres. One of the actually one of the largest freshwater marsh restoration projects in North America, with all the dike work and everything they did. I think there's like 26 miles of dikes, but that's you know, another huge. You know, and it's just, you know, so, so when, when folks go onto that refuge and go hunt, you know, I hope they really, I hope they really take it all in 
and, and listen, I know there's going to be days you want to shoot birds and go this, but but I hope like everybody that goes there like really understands and appreciates the, um, you know, the history of where they are and how long that place has been going. You know what I mean? That's the kind of right. stuff that's just, you know, that just fascinates me. Um, and, and I think every waterfowler that's truly buried in this, like that kind of stuff just, you know, it warms your heart and it just, you think about that kind of stuff and it's so, so damn cool. Yeah. There's just one last thing, Mario. Yeah. We're wrapping it up, but yeah. um, one thing, and I've been hunting since I was 12. That was the first, you know, in Michigan you had to be 12 to hunt back when I was growing yeah. up. That's no longer the case, but yeah, I started duck hunting when I was 12 and I've been with the Michigan DNR for over 27 years now. And I've done a lot of, you know, waterfowl surveys and driving on the dikes during lunchtime and, checking out you know hunters uh, how they're trying to hide the marsh or corn and the the biggest thing the biggest failure that i see for the success of, of quite a few hunters is not being able to hide yeah um i'm not i'm not going to knock anyone's camel i'm not going to say anything of you know one brand or the other but all i can tell you is a lighter camel you can always make a lighter lighter camel darker you can't make a darker camel, camel lighter lighter and you stick out like a turd in a punch bowl when you yeah. want a dark camel it yeah. may look good on the shelf right but it doesn't look good in the cattails or flooded corn or whatever, you know, habitat type for hunting. Yeah, you gotta you gotta figure out where. Uh, you know, listen, I've always been like that on the layout blinds, Joe. Same thing. You know what I mean? You can you can, you can always turn them one way, but you can't turn them the other way. Right. So, so there's no there's no doubt. There is no doubt. You got to know where you're hiding. And and listen, I, I I am in total agreement with you. I think it all comes down to that simple that simple fact of hiding because uh, you could have the decoy like it doesn't matter about the decoys and the calling and all that other stuff if you're if you're standing out like a sore thumb like it just just doesn't matter you know Wait, man, i've heard you i've heard you call well i mean I, i've scared I'm some away I've sc- i'm just joking you know that <laughs> i know <laughs> let's go let's go back up let's go back to alberta bro let's go let's hop in the truck let's go like I'll meet you there, believe me. Oh my God, could we use that? Hey, listen, Joe. I always post the picture, and everybody always goes nuts. But Joe, Joe was on the hunt. Uh, like everybody always goes, you know, post up, post up your your most epic pick. You know what I mean? And there's no doubt. I post the picture of me, you, James, Thistle, Neil, uh, Stevie, uh, Terrence. Uh, Terrence uh was d with us i think d was with us i think he was yeah yeah d uh i mean you know we shot like 187 and it's like you know you know and 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 it was funny because i i remember posting that somewhere and somebody said uh boy i bet you that was i bet you that was awful you know i bet you that was an awful hunt and a lot of guns going off and just madness and i i actually thought it was one of the most calm, fun hunts uh, with that many guys because there was nobody there trying to, like, beat anybody up, you know what I mean, to shoot. Everybody shot their birds. Everybody had a great time. There was a lot of joking, a lot of ball busting, and that was probably one of the most fun times. And, 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 and it being a pile of birds on top of it was just icing. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. That was, uh, that was oh. definitely a great hunt. Um, oh my god! You know, <laughs> something, something I'll, I'll always remember and cherish. And 
it, yeah, people, I've had the same comments, all that, you know, you're party hunting and everybody's right. shooting them. Like, no, it wasn't that way. I said, you know, so they're on the left side, we got, we let the guys the left shoot. So they're in the middle with the middle guy shot, right. the right, the right guy shot. I said, there's half the time I didn't even shoot because other people are shooting or we call out shots. I said, it wasn't that way. And but, it, and yeah. it was so much. That's why it was so enjoyable. That's what I'm saying. And it was because everybody there, uh, like everybody there was a, a, you know, and I say this in, 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 in all seriousness, everybody there was a killer in their own right. You know what I mean? From where they were from. I mean, we were talking about a bunch of incredible waterfowlers who take the sport seriously, do their homework, you know, work hard at it. And nobody was there to puff their chest out or be the guy. Like everybody was so happy. Everybody else was shooting and having a good time and busting balls and the whole deal. You know what I mean? And that's why I said, oh, yeah. that's why that was, you know, if I could put, if I could put those 10 guys in a blind again, it'd be the same, you know, it'd be a pisser. And, and that's what folks don't understand. Like, you know, I, I can understand, you know, maybe you have 10 guys in and it's a joke because, you know, this guy's trying to, you know, get up and everybody and, and shoot before this guy or this guy wants to be the main caller or whatever. Everybody was like, everybody played a part, had a good time and felt like it was just, like I said, there was nothing beating that. You know what I mean? And when Rob right. said, when Rob said that night, hey, do you guys all want to hunt together? Because I have, you know, a ball buster tomorrow that could probably shoot all 10 of you guys. And I was like, there's no doubt. Like, that 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 to me made the whole trip because, you know, everybody had to split up. And I got to hunt with you a couple days. And then these guys, you know what I mean? But that day was right. it. Like, we got to hunt with everybody. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, listen, that's what this this whole crazy sport and this whole thing that we do, you know, it's all about the relationships that everybody has and the friends and the tradition and just enjoying yourselves and you know and that's that whole trip was like that so that's Heck what i yeah, said making memories yeah there's making no doubt memories, making new new friends and 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 bust a great time and busting balls on old friends <laughs> i'm good i'm good at doing that oh man joe i appreciate it bud hey let's talk maybe before uh Maybe we'll do another one before the season starts or as soon as we get cracking, we'll get an update over there. You know what I mean? Because you guys obviously sure. start a lot earlier than us. So let's Sounds just – great to me. Yeah, let's just make it a point to get on and, and BS before uh, – like as soon as you guys get, get started. That'd be great. Okay. Sounds all, good. All right, Joe. Appreciate it, buddy. Great talking with you. Talk to you soon. Shoot straight. All right. You too, bud. See you, bud. All right, bye. All right, folks. That's Joe from Michigan, the DNR. Uh Jojo's the best man. He's he's a straight shooter, great guy, uh, great jokes, great guy to have in camp, and just totally fun. And just man, he's just just lives lives waterfowl. I mean, that's why all of us, like I said, get together, talk, stay in touch. That's what it's all about. It's it's this it's this tradition that just and this sport that just does it. Man, I love it. Uh, that's your FA podcast for today. Big shout outs to everybody that helps us and, uh, partners up with us. Benelli federal, uh, pattern master, uh, the folks at Mossy Oak, uh, camp chef, my guys at Benchmade, loophole. And, uh, and just like we talked about Rob's place up in, in Alberta, Ranchland outfitters. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that that hunt that just like joe said those those memories and stuff like that that's that's what people in this sport you know 
I mean, that's what I live for is doing stuff like that and having a great time. So hats off to everybody that does that and, and enjoys this as much as we do. All right. Appreciate you checking out. If um, if you need any details on, on any of the goods or any of the products, you could hit us up on FABrand.com on the website. Uh, we just threw up some more videos on our YouTube channel. Uh, so there's a lot going on there. Hit us up and go to our uh, Instagram page and follow us there. Facebook, like us. Um, and if you go to the YouTube channel, subscribe. And the podcasts are up. Uh, we even threw them up on YouTube because obviously we record them um, video-wise and everything else. Or if not, go to Apple Podcasts and the other platforms and, and find the podcast. So appreciate you checking us out and joining us. And we'll be back probably another uh, week or two with another one. All right? Appreciate it.